Good morning, good morning. It's my pleasure to bring the second reading, sermon reading today. And at this stage, it's the beginning of our new book, 2 Timothy, and Paul, at this point, um, is looking at the end of his life, and he wants to give some encouragement to his spiritual son, Timothy. Yes. First five verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and, I'm persuaded, now lives in you also. As I was up before, I neglected a couple of things. Uh, firstly, I just want to say welcome back to Amy again. Uh, so Amy was with us, uh, so Amy serves in, in Cordoba, uh, Argentina. Uh, she was with us just before the school holidays. She's also with us all this coming week. And so it'd be great to have her uh, in amongst us doing various things this week. So welcome back again, Amy. It was great to have you. Uh, the, the other thing I did not mention, uh, Graham Kelly and his wife Annette are here today. And Graham lost his father this week as well. And so uh, I'm sorry I didn't communicate that earlier, but thank you. Uh, um, please let your condolences for you guys at this time, which is a tough time for you. Let me pray as we get into this passage. Uh, dear Lord, as we reflect on your word now, I pray that I might speak faithfully to it, that we might understand your will for each of us clearly. Amen. And you may or may not be a Christian here this morning, or if you've joined us online, but who has been a significant influence on you. Who's a Christian who's been a significant influence on you? I mean, at very least, who was influential in, in getting you to come here today? Uh, but just think about that for a moment and then share with the person next to you. Has there been a significant Christian influence in your life? Discuss. <laughs> okay, let's bring it back together. I, I might just see if there's a few people willing to... To just give us either, either a name or a person, you know, was it a leader, was it a parent, you know, etc. But what are some of the significant influences? Love to hear them. Greenacre Baptist Church. Greenacre Baptist Church, which I particularly love. I wasn't a Greenacre Baptist, but I was a Greenacre Anglican, uh, which is awesome. I'll take any Greenacre connection. Yeah. Greenacre Anglican. Yeah. So we're not kidding. Uh, yeah. What about some others? Dad and mum. Dad and mum. <laughs> grandparents. Grandparents, yep. Yeah, my mum who took me to church. Yep, mum. My grandmother. Grandmother, yep. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, as we get into uh, this passage today, we're going to see a significant, a whole bunch of people who have been a significant influence on the life of Timothy. Uh, but let's get into it. Uh, the opening words of this letter begin with the author identifying himself as Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. 
Now, if you don't know much about Paul, then let me give you the very, very short version. Uh, Before he became a Christian, Paul was known as Saul, and he was an extremely well-educated, extremely zealous Jewish Pharisee. And in the months after the death of Jesus, he recognised how this new Jesus movement threatened traditional Judaism. And so he then commits himself to purging the local synagogues of these Christians. So he wants to make sure this doesn't turn into that. And somewhat ironically, he's going to be a big contributor to that uh, as we go on. But so one day he's going on a Christian hunt uh, to Damascus and he is literally struck blind as he travels along the road. And Jesus, who's now ascended to be with the Father, spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then soon after, Jesus speaks to another guy in Damascus. His name was Ananias. And he says to Ananias, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And in the end, Saul is taken to Damascus. He meets Ananias. His sight is restored. But more significantly, by the grace of God and with the help of the Spirit, he sees that Jesus really is the promised Old Testament Messiah and he becomes a follower of Jesus. And almost immediately, he starts going from synagogue to synagogue telling everyone this wonderful news. And he's given the title of apostle, which is significant because it speaks to his authority. So everyone who follows Jesus is a disciple, uh, but the title apostle was reserved for those who had a particular role, they've been set apart as witnesses to the resurrection. So he wasn't there at the resurrection, uh, but he has witnessed the resurrected Jesus in his encounter on the road to Damascus. And in these opening words, he acknowledges that everything he has, his commitment to Christ, his title as an apostle, is all because of the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promises of life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we like to think that we are in control of our, of our own lives, now, which is a wonderful illusion. We think we make decisions because we've got the intelligence to make those decisions. But in reality, even our intelligence isn't in our control. Our, our family of origin isn't in our control. Our capacity to persevere and overcome isn't in our control, it's woven into our nature. And it's the same with our relationship with God. Now, he is the one who opens eyes, he's the one who moves hearts of stone to become hearts of flesh. And the promise is simple. Anyone who recognises Jesus as the one who saves us from our sin and follows Jesus as Lord has life. So that's Paul, Uh, he's the apostle, he's writing, he's writing to Timothy, my dear son. Uh, Now Timothy is not literally Paul's biological son, but the language of sonship is this beautiful expression of his affection for Timothy, but also their dynamic together. You know, Paul is the older, wiser master. Uh, Timothy, his uh, prodigy, his protege, who becomes a leader 
in his own right. Uh, Paul first met Timothy in Lystra, and then Timothy travels with Paul all over the place as he uh, is involved in his missionary journeys. And he leads local churches under the authority of Paul, including the church in Ephesus. And most likely, that is where he is living uh, when he receives this letter from Paul. And as we read this letter, and particularly if you read it all in one sitting, you get this sense of urgency, because things are not going well for Paul. Uh, He's in Rome, he's in prison, and he's just gone through his first trial, and that hasn't gone so well. And so he's pretty sure that his life is coming to an end. Now, that said, he hasn't, he hasn't given up. So he writes to Timothy and says, look, I'd love, love you to come and see me. And if you can come, you know, bring my cloak. Obviously, a mighty fine cloak. Um, but also, you know, scrolls and his parchments. And so he's still thinking, he's still learning, he's still teaching, he's still writing. But he's also very conscious that if he's got something to say, that now is the time to say it. And so he begins by reminding Timothy of what he's received in Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace speaks to God's favour. It offers reconciliation when we deserve separation. By God's grace, we've been saved, and by God's grace, we continue to be saved, and He continues to hold on to us. And grace is a natural outworking of mercy. Yeah, mercy isn't simply that God ignores the bad things that we do. He sees it all. He sees how we treat him. He sees how we treat other people. He knows the thoughts of our heart and the attitudes of our heart. He knows all of that. So he knows that we're not particularly nice people. And he knows that the fair consequence for our sin is his judgment. That would be just. But instead, he offers mercy. And he allows his son to stand in our place and to bear the consequences of our sin. And so out of grace and mercy comes peace. It's a peace knowing that through Christ, our relationship with God has been restored. That God is for us. It's peace knowing that through Christ, our sin no longer has power over us. It doesn't get to define our past or dictate our future. And that peace with God then overflows into a desire to be peacemakers. And part of being a peacemaker is showing that same grace and mercy that God has shown us to others. And so Paul is thankful for the grace, mercy and peace in Timothy's life. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. Now the focus of these words is on his affection for Timothy. But notice this brief digression at the start of this statement. As my ancestors did. Now Paul is not out there teaching a new religion. The God who he serves is the God of Israel. And the message he proclaims is the fulfilled message of the Old Testament prophets. And so he's thankful to God for Timothy, and there are tears when they parted. It's just a beautiful picture, isn't it, of this wonderful friendship and fellowship together. He longs to see them again. 
uh, wants to see Timothy again. But he also recognises that he's not the only significant Christian influence in Timothy's life. And so he goes on to acknowledge and to celebrate the influence of his grandmother, Aunt Lois, and his mother, Eunice. God is the one who saves, but that doesn't mean we all don't have a part to play. So Paul writes uh, these words in the book of, or the letter of 1 Corinthians. He says, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And so the clear emphasis in those words is God who is making things grow. But as parents, as grandparents, we are still called to plant and water, and we're still accountable for God to God for how we then take up that responsibility. And it still makes a difference. God uses us to fulfil his plans. So for Timothy, it's his mother and grandmother. But the point is just as relevant uh, for fathers and grandfathers. And actually, fathers have a unique responsibility because fathers are called to lead their families. Now, this is not the point of the passage, but while we're talking about the role of parents, uh, I think it's worth taking a moment to acknowledge. So in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, I appreciate in our particular cultural context of the moment that that is a very politically incorrect statement. And there is no doubt that, you know, over time, that plenty of people have used that idea of men leaving their family and male headship in the home to be controlling and manipulative and abusive. Uh, that behaviour is real, uh, but it is a gross misrepresentation of what Jesus, of what Paul is talking about here. Yeah, headship in the family should be modelled on Christ who sacrificed himself for his church. So it's self-sacrificing, not self-serving. And when it comes to our children, he says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children, even though it's easy and sometimes slightly entertaining. <laughs> he left that out, but he was not. <laughs> Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, now, that's not to diminish the role of mothers in the words of Proverbs. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. But my point is simply uh, that husbands are called to lead their families and I'm emphasising that point because I think more often than not that us husbands do not lead our families well in raising our children to know and love the Lord. Uh, we are doing it in partnership with our wives, but I think often we haven't just sort of delegated some of that responsibility, we've often completely abdicated that responsibility. So I think there's a challenge for dads. How, do we, how are we investing in the lives of our children? Uh, as parents, you know, we cannot make our children follow Christ. We would love to be able to do that and choose who they marry, uh, but we can't. Uh, but what we can do is plant and we can water. And so let me suggest a few things that might be helpful. 
Uh, the first, uh, to clear up the language of Paul in Colossians, before we even talk about parenting, we need, need to make sure that we, as parents, are keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Christ. If we do that, uh, then we'll be reading our Bible because we want to know what God wants for us. Uh, we want to know what God wants for our marriage. We want to know what God wants for our parenting. And as we're guided by God's word, that means we're listening to his wisdom and uh, we're not listening to our own wisdom. Uh, secondly, uh, we need to look after our marriage. Uh, we love our children, uh, but they can become all-consuming between kids and work and, and hobbies and, and things like that. It's easy to neglect our marriage. And when we get tired and when we get stressed, then we know how, how it all works out. But little things become big things, and then they start to become patterns of behaviour and patterns of how we relate together. Now, that's not good for us, it's not good for our marriage, it's not good for our kids, and it's not honouring to God. Uh, so let's look after our marriage and make sure it's characterised by grace and mercy and peace. And let's take pleasure in understanding how the other person wants to be loved and then loving them generously. So if that's something that you have neglected, then I hope even just this brief sort of moment here becomes an invitation to perhaps have a longer conversation with your husband and wife. So love Jesus, love your marriage, and then coming in at number three, we can talk about loving our kids and how we plant and water the good news of Jesus in their life. You know, as parents, we are the single most significant influence on the life of our children. Now, I appreciate at times we don't feel that influential and all the evidence would suggest otherwise, uh, but it's not true. Our kids are looking to us for guidance and for confidence and for security and for approval. And they're looking to us for direction. Uh, so we need to start by modelling godliness. Our children should be able to watch and see how we speak and how we prioritise our time and how we spend our money. And that should tell them and show them what's really important to us. And as Christians, that they will see Christ. So us being committed to coming to church, or us being committed to going to our connect group, or encouraging them to be committed to Cross Life Kids, or City Kids, or Cross Life Youth, all of those things say something about what you value, but also what you want them to value. And once a pattern in life is set, and the longer you leave that pattern in place, we know how this works, the harder it is to reset that pattern. You know, when I worked at uh, Greenacre, it's funny that we mentioned Greenacre this morning, uh, but we had a, a fantastic young girl in our youth group who was exceptionally talented. And really for her, opportunity was just like a, you know, a whopping big smorgasbord. You know, there was just all laid out in front of her, and you almost feel negligent to not try everything. And so it was all there for her. But inevitably, uh, something had to give. And so with all of this opportunity, that you know, a bit like the parable of the sower in Luke 8, that Jesus was just sort of slowly choked out of her life. You know, all the pleasures and worries of life just all became too much. And Jesus moved to the side and to the edge and then finally moved out altogether. And as things unraveled, and mum came to me uh, really just desperate. She wanted someone to do something to help her daughter, you know, come back to Christ. Now, if God can move 
Paul uh, to, to come back and, and recognise uh, Jesus as his Lord and Saviour, that he can work in anyone. Absolutely. But humanly speaking, within our limitations, we recognise actually once that pattern of life has been set, to some extent that force has bolted. And of course we pray that things will change in the future, but certainly the choices that were made made things harder, not easier. And so I kind of encourage us to think about what are the patterns we set for our children. Let's set good patterns early. You know, when our kids are little, you know, let's bring Bible reading into our story time and, and bed, you know, each week or each, each evening. As the kids get older, it might be, look more like, you know, sitting around the dining room table and, and reading the Bible and talking about it together. You know, I think when our kids were really little, uh, we, we did a very good job. We, we were really committed to doing that each night. I think as the kids got a little older, a little more independent, they could read for themselves. I'm not sure if we did quite as well. But as they get older, you've also got this wonderful new opportunity of sitting and talking about life together, you know, how they're feeling about life, what's happening in, at school, what's happening with friendships. And you get to talk all about all of that from a Christian perspective. What does it mean to be a Christian at school? What does it mean to be a Christian with their friends? You know, how does their example at school either promote Jesus or become a hindrance? Uh, how do they look after the kid in their class who perhaps doesn't have a, a lot of friends? Or how do they you know, love their, their neighbour who literally sits sharing a desk with them and who's quite hard to love? You know, they're good conversations to have with our kids. As they get older, we need to talk about what it looks like to stand firm in an increasingly antagonistic world. And not just take the hits, but in a God-honouring way, how do we hit back? How do we share the hope and how do we encourage our kids to share the hope they have in Christ? As part of those faith conversations, uh, it's important to give our children permission to express doubt and to help them work through those doubts. And as much as we want them to give the right answer, we feel much safer when they give us the right answer, uh, actually allowing them to express the wrong answer and then working it through is actually really important for them. And often becomes a catalyst for them strengthening in their own faith and their own maturity. It's not always the easiest journey, but that's the journey that forms us. And so as we seek to raise our kids to love Jesus, then I hope we can recognise that A, as parents, we've got a whole bunch of opportunities, but secondly, we're not alone. Uh, For Timothy, it was his grandmother. Uh, For me, it was my grandfather. Uh, We called him Colonel. Uh, It was Colonel with a K. And he was a man who deeply loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. You know, he's just one of those guys that just exuded a, not just a passion to, to love Christ, but to live for Christ and to make a difference. And he had time for me. You know, we used to sit you know, under the house and tinker in the workshop and we'd talk about Christian things and we'd talk about ministry. And, you know, when I was little, we talked about it in one way. As, as I got a bit older, the conversation changed. But he was just this wonderful example of a godly, not-parent influence in my life. You know, parents are certainly the biggest influence on our children. But if you are a grandparent, then don't underestimate how much you are loved and respected by your grandchildren. And I love one of the things I'm loving at the moment is seeing how our, you know, getting slightly older children now relate as adults uh, to their grandparents and how that just changes over time. 
Uh, this passage uh, is not talking about the role of the church, but again, as we talk about different influences in our life, let me take a moment to talk about that. Because we do have family, but we've also got each other. Uh, we cannot delegate our Christian responsibility to the church. Uh, but God has gathered us together as his body, and as being part of the body, we work together for the sake of each other, but also for the sake of our children. Our children are as much part of the church, as much the church, as any of us. And so each week, you know, we have cross-life kids, we've got cross-life youth on Sunday kids, Sunday youth. Uh, we've got all of our church services. And in every single one of those spaces, we want the same thing for our children. Uh, we want them to love Jesus. Uh, we want them to be growing together. We want them speaking the good news. And we want them supporting others. Uh, we hope that they love coming along. We hope that it's fun for them. But our goal is not to entertain them. Our goal is to disciple them. Uh, we want to see our young people to see themselves and to recognise that as they gather together with other Christians each week, that it's good for them, uh, that it helps them grow in their love for Christ. But equally, I want them to see how they become good for other people, that they've actually got something to give and not just something to receive. And of course, that's going to be in an age-appropriate way. But part of our job as parents is not just to encourage our kids, but to see how, how do we encourage them to encourage others. Now, the thing that I love about the opening words of this letter is they're completely grounded in what God is doing. It's all about God's will and God being faithful to his promises and God who gives life and shows mercy and grace and who brings peace. And all of that has been revealed through God's people. He's been working through Lois and Eunice and Paul. He's working through the church. And so it's this wonderfully big picture, and at the same time, also wonderfully personal. So I hope as you to reflect on your own life, that you can see how God has been using different people to help you come to Christ, to help you grow in Christ. But I also hope that we can see our role as we seek to plant and as we seek to water in the lives of others, you know, recognising that God is the one who brings the growth. Amen.